0: Listener production. A note before we start. This episode includes descriptions of intimate partner violence. If you've experienced or at risk of domestic and family violence and or sexual assault, you can call 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong, and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago reaching out to people who I admire who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Are you trapped in a corporate job you just hate? Thankfully, I discovered my passion early in life, but what if you don't? My guest is a psychiatrist who began life as a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. In this episode, Lisa Pryor discusses being trapped in the wrong job, managing mental health issues as a leader, and juggling study and motherhood. Lisa Pryor, welcome to the podcast. Now, I won't lie to you. When I asked you to do this podcast, I never really expected you to say yes, because I know you as a very talented columnist and journalist who worked on the Sydney Morning Herald, who then went off to have a completely different life and study medicine and are now a trained psychiatrist. Interested to know what made you say yes? Because I, I know that you've kind of turned your back on this kind of professional profile-building, you know, activities.
1: Yeah. And Helen, you're right. I have just been quietly going about my business for some years and keeping my opinions to myself, and that's been very pleasant. In terms of why I would say yes to talking now, I guess one thing I'm conscious of is that I'm now, I've am now i now finished my training and I'm about to be a consultant psychiatrist, and I'm very conscious that there are not many women speaking publicly in that space. And hopefully, after the last seven years of training, I might have something helpful to contribute. I don't plan to do a lot of it, but... Um, i make an exception for you, Helen.
0: I'm so, so pleased that you have said yes, because um, I think what we're going to talk about today will be really useful to many people who listen to this podcast. So tell me a bit about what you're doing right now, uh, and then we'll go back in time. So
1: I've been a doctor now for eight years, and for the last seven of those years, I've been working as a psychiatry registrar, which is a medical doctor working in mental health and training to be a psychiatrist. So that's taking me all over... The hospitals of Sydney, I've worked in everything from drug and alcohol detox to, you know, seeing people in crisis in ED in the middle of the night and working in child psychiatry and perinatal psychiatry. And that's what I've been filling up my time with.
0: If we go back in time, you began as a lawyer or you started doing a law degree and then managed to turn up at the Sydney Morning Herald?
1: Yeah, I've, I've finished my law degree, I've got to say. That's, I, that I know is that outrageous. I know it looks like I'd chop and change, but that's one thing I would say. I've never started a degree I haven't finished. I don't think you need to be defensive. I'm talking to someone <laughs> yeah, who does. has a
0: law degree, was a celebrated journalist, and now has a medical degree and has, has gone on to do psychiatry. It's, that yeah, is way overqualified. It's over a qualified. bit pathological, isn't it?
1: <laughs> but uh, but yeah, in terms of becoming a journalist, so I w- that was way back in the day. It was 2002 and... It might be a strange thing for people, young people working in media today to hear, but the way I got the job was it was advertised and I applied for it and I got given a job as a trainee journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald and I was just amazed that they paid me. I remember what it was. It was $36,000 a year, which was just incredible and exciting and
0: yeah, and then I spent some years working as a reporter. So many people listening to this podcast will be in a situation where they're in a job that they don't like uh, and they feel trapped. Talk us through how you came to decide to give up what was to everybody, sorry, what was to many people a dream job to go and pursue something that you're really passionate about. It was a dream job for me as
1: well. I really enjoyed being a journalist. I didn't leave because I didn't enjoy it. But I did get to the point where I started to think, one thing I always noticed about being a journalist is often you're in rooms with people that knew more about something than you you did. Like you were the person talking to experts about things you didn't really understand and you had to work really hard to sort of become an instant expert, you know, in a day or two on these topics other people had, had genuine expertise in. And I think I got a bit tired of that. And also I, I think there was something about maybe having opinions and getting paid to have opinions. I actually just wanted to do something Practical and useful, and I think they were two things that were in my head when I was thinking about the, the change to medicine. But the kind of the story of how that change actually happened is that I was writing a book about illicit drug policy, and as part of that, I um, arranged with the doctors at St. Vincent's to go and spend New Year's Eve in the emergency department to see what happens on a big party night like that in ED, and. Um, tragically i had the most fun new year's eve i'd had in years it was way more fun for me than going to a party i just loved being a part of it all and watching the doctors do their thing and the nurses and um i just loved that combination of that ed doctors seem to have which is that combination of expertise and sort of academic knowledge but also just street smarts and that's where i got inspired and thought well i could always what's what's the harm in applying for medical school if I don't get in, I've still, you know, been able to study for
0: the entrance exam and that'll be useful for journalism. So that's how it all started. So at that point, did you have children? Because for many people, the idea of going back and doing medicine after, a, you know, a law degree and a celebrated journalism career, just the the road ahead looks really long. So talk me through your thought process. The, the,
1: the road ahead looks, looking back on it now, that looks like a long and tiring road, I think at that time when I was only 30, I think I was full of optimism and I didn't realise how hard it would be. But yeah, I did have, um, this is just going to sound ridiculous now, but I did have my first baby at that time. And so I studied for the entrance exams while I was also on maternity leave with my baby. And uh, it wasn't an easy road, but I do feel like it's been worth it.
0: What do you say to anyone listening to you today who's going, I just, don't know whether I should do it or not. Well, I would say, first of all, I think one of the risks of me talking
1: about my experience is that it makes it look too easy. And that I think my career, when you put put it in a nutshell, can just sound really obnoxious and actually puts pressure on other people to feel like they need to work that hard or do that many things and you don't need to. I think it's about doing what's right for you at the time. But yeah, I think it's definitely worth, if you're not happy where you are, moving towards something you are happy with whatever career you're in.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's one of the great privileges of living in this country, um, particularly if you've got some means. There's almost a, it's almost an obligation or an imperative. Like why stay and do the, something that you're not happy when you've kind of got the opportunities to to do something more meaningful. And I do think about that. Like I think of, I feel like I'm a
1: lucky person living at a really lucky time and I need to make the most of my opportunities. And I guess I think they're, say my mum, I hope she doesn't mind me telling this story, but my mum who was like the ducks of her school, but still had to leave school at the age of 15 to start full-time work because that's what she had to do. And she studied at night and did become an accountant like through study at, at night. But when I think of like what she might have had to go through, or I think of um, like, I think also of my grandmother who did incredibly well at school and got a BHP scholarship to study geology and was so excited to do that. And then when they realised she was a woman and not a man, she got given a gold watch instead and didn't get to have the scholarship. I think, yeah, like I just feel very fortunate and I need to make the most of my opportunities.
0: Why psychiatry?
1: So when I went into medicine, I wasn't didn't have my heart set on psychiatry. The two things I was tossing up was emergency medicine and psychiatry. But I feel like with my background that I think I can be more useful in psychiatry than I could be in emergency medicine. And also the thing that has always interested me when speaking to patients is people's lives and their stories and that's what psychiatry is all about. So I feel like it's right sort of at the core of what interests me,
0: which is how we live life. It's something that I find myself talking a lot about at the moment is managing a team with mental health issues and that's because everyone's managing teams with mental health issues. I think a lot about my time in newsrooms and what now is quite clear to me, uh, strong mental health issues amongst some of the most talented people that I worked with. Yet we never labelled it, or or more to the point, understood at all what we were seeing and working with at the time. Do you look back with the clarity of a trained professional at those days?
1: Uh, Well, I I do think that with psychiatry training, you definitely do notice details about people that you might not otherwise notice. But I would also say, I think that's one of the things that scares people about psychiatrists, particularly in social settings, that somehow the psychiatrist is judging them about their failures or quirks or problems. When I think if you're going to do psychiatry well, you do notice the details, but you notice them with compassion and you notice them with awareness that you have your own quirks and failings. So I think that's really important to try and not judge people, but to understand.
0: The thing I would like to explore a little bit is how we help. People who are leading teams today. I see a lot of anxiety, I see a lot of bipolar, I see a lot of ADHD. What do you wish leaders could understand about people that are wrestling with mental health issues?
1: It is a really hard thing, I think, at the moment, that I think everyone from bosses to teachers, basically the whole of society is struggling with this that there's suddenly so many more people with diagnoses. And it's almost like we have to become instant experts in all these different difficulties. But but one thing I would say is, in terms of mental health problems in the workplace, that the prevention is much uh, better than cure. That's something to keep in mind. And it's also much cheaper, which I think is important to think about. So if you can create a healthy workplace where people don't end up in crisis or don't feel overwhelmed, that's going to be a better way to run a business. Uh, And I think the other thing I would say is that often what is good for employees with mental illness is often good for everyone. So an example I'd give there is, say, for example, if you do have bipolar disorder, it's really important to look after your sleep and maintain a a good routine and look after your circadian rhythms because often when people start to become unwell, one of the first signs is their sleep goes off or if they're not getting enough sleep, that can trigger an episode. Uh, So it's really important if you have bipolar to sort of know have regular shifts, to have, to not be expected to pull all-nighters, to, to have breaks between work days. But that's also really important for everyone. Um, for example, I guess th- that those principles are just as important if, say, you're a, a single mum or you have caring responsibilities to know what shifts you have and when is also really valuable for that group of people and for all of us. So definitely valuable for me.
0: Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um Talk to me about anxiety. When did you first come to understand it and see it and how should we manage it in the workplace?
1: Anxiety is really interesting because I think the first thing I would say is that anxiety itself is not a disorder. It's part of life. Everyone experiences some anxiety and it can be helpful to us. So, for example, getting some butterflies before you give a speech, often that can make you more focused, make you actually perform a little bit better if you have a little bit of anxiety. But obviously, there are, there can be a point where that anxiety becomes so high that it's overwhelming and it impairs your performance, and also where it can be so pervasive that it's a disorder. So both those things are true. It's both normal and it can be a disorder. In terms of how we manage it, I think that the evidence-based way to manage anxiety is often counterintuitive for people. So the principle is basically graded exposure. So the more you step towards the thing that is making you fearful, that, that that's actually a helpful thing. And the more you avoid it, the more you'll reinforce anxiety. So I think it gets really tricky there because an employer, employer wants to be understanding of someone with anxiety. But say, for example, taking lots of time off work for anxiety is probably going to make your anxiety worse. So I, I think it's, it's
0: complicated. So I'm a manager of a person who is being treated for anxiety, is on medication. I'm all fully aware of that. What... Do you recommend I need to think about? Noting that you can't actually, you know, give full blown medical advice here. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm asking as a leader what advice have you got for me? Because this is a pretty common experience for leaders at the moment.
1: I think you have to be the best, most caring boss you can be, but you don't have to be that person's psychiatrist. Yep. I think that's really important. It isn't the job of, it isn't your job to treat that person, that person should have access to a professional, a psychologist to do CBT, maybe a GP or a psychiatrist to prescribe medication if that's necessary. But it's, I don't think that has to be or should be the job of of the employer. Yep. Uh, but But I think definitely being compassionate and understanding and also just meeting your legal obligations and occupational health and safety obligations, I think that's the most important thing.
0: Because I'm going to be super candid with you. People my age uh, who've been leading for a long time and have had newsrooms for, you know, not newsrooms, have had teams of people for a long time in different professions are starting to wonder, like, are we doing something wrong that I've got lots of staff with anxiety? Or is it just that we were turning a blind eye? Or are we making it worse by constantly going, oh, if you're feeling bad, you should take days off? Mm. And and I think it's interesting that all, all
1: those debates, I think sometimes... People think, well, psychiatrists would say that it's all a disorder and everything, it's all mental illness and everything should be medicalised. But I would actually say those exact same questions that you're asking in the workplace are also questions that people are asking within psychiatry and within mental health. It is It is really complicated. So you worry that you're making it worse? Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the, the, well, I think that the so there are some like social media or TikTok ideas about mental health that are about that you should talk about your problems all the time to everyone that actually aren't necessarily where the evidence is about what's helpful for people. And I do think we need to, it is a more complicated picture than, than what might be presented on social media. So for example, like an example of that, that idea that talking about everything all the time isn't helpful. I think an interesting example is say in crisis management, like it used to be the case after a terrible event, you know, people would rush in with emergency mental health help and you'd get everyone to speak to a psychologist and everyone would would go through in detail and talk about the awful things they'd just seen and, and heard and experienced. But then the evidence more recently has shown that's actually often really counterproductive. It can actually make people's trauma worse. And that sometimes what a lot of people will just need in that situation is a nice cup of tea, someone to, colleagues to talk to, Good sleep, some exercise, maintaining a routine. Talking about trauma isn't necessarily the best solution for everyone. It might be helpful for
0: some people, but it's certainly not a blanket rule. That is so interesting. You know, I do think people who are leading lots of different, in lots of different circumstances, do struggle because, no, what does work for one colleague may not work for the next. Mm. Is there anything you see in your practice that is more common to women than to men? Yes. And
1: maybe the most obvious thing to mention here is about things to do with the female life cycle. Obviously, there can be an increase in mental health problems around the time that people have babies and also around the time of menopause. But I actually think that's a secondary issue. I would say that. The difference I see the most in my day-to-day work is trauma-related, and that it's about what happens in women's life—the that lives that has nothing to do with their brain chemistry. And the two big ones are—and this is an um, issue that you've had interest in, in involvement over the years—is domestic violence, and then also sexual assault. And I'm, I'm sorry that I have such a—it's such a heavy answer to that question, but honestly, that is the thing more than anything that would be the most common factor that separates the genders when I see people in distress.
0: And is there anything that you wish people who are leading those individuals could know or do to help?
1: The thing I would say as a mental health professional is that a lot, the most useful things we can do are probably outside the mental health system. I think that's probably true for mental health problems generally. Um, so if we're with domestic va- violence, it's not necessarily just about counseling people once they've experienced trauma it's actually about making sure they have a safe place to live and that they can get on with their lives that they're not harassed and followed by abusers through their life there's it's really practical stuff that's important for people's mental health in those situations
0: do you think we're getting better at it you you would have been covering these stories as a journalist i've been i used to turn up to homes in adelaide when i was a baby television journalist to be told it was a domestic, only a domestic violence and to go home and I could hear the screaming and the yelling, you know, are we getting better? I, yeah, I've,
1: I've heard those things as a journalist as well back in the day. I actually do think we are and I, I really do think we are and it feels complicated to say that because it sounds like I'm trying to, there's it, a risk that it sounds like you're trying to minimise what's what's still still happening but I do think we are and, and I think the fact that it, I think um, we have a language around it. Now, in a way, we didn't. And I think that's actually, like in Australia, for example, the term coercive control, that is pretty much common knowledge now as a, as terminology that just wasn't previously. And I think a lot of, I would say, it goes to show how j- journalism can be actually really valuable. I think Jess Hill and her book um, about domestic violence is one of the reasons that has become such common knowledge that it, it shows how... Yeah, journalism can be used to be make an important difference in people's lives. Coercive control,
0: financial abuse, love bombing, gaslighting—we now know all of that. I think there's still a big piece of education that needs to take place outside of you know, sort of the inner city world. Yes, but it is a lot better for sure. Yeah. What sort of leader are you? How how do you describe yourself? Your leadership skills? Oh, what leadership skills do you think you have? It feels kind of embarrassed to answer that question. It feels like an interview
1: when you've got to talk about your strengths. Yes, but Just give it a go. But, but but what I would say is, I I mean I I have been and sort of for, for most of my career as a doctor, I've been a junior doctor, so I haven't been in a position of power. But what I would try to do is approach work with a focus on being collegial, having like a team approach, including people, being kind, and that's I guess
0: my approach to. What leadership I do have, so that brings me to an interesting point. You're a junior doctor, but older, I imagine, yeah. than some of the people you worked for. <laughs> yes. How did you How did you navigate that space? Yeah. That was
1: yeah, that was a a funny transition in my career. So in my sort of late twenties, I actually had a relatively senior position in journalism because I was the opinion editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, which was a big deal at the time, and I had to do things like. I literally wrangle um, future prime ministers and past prime ministers and get them to file their copy on time and ask them to write certain things. So that, that was, um, yeah, it was a challenge of stepping up as someone in your 20s to tell people in their 40s what to do. And then I had moved on to medicine where I was completely junior. I was the bottom of the rung. No one cared what I'd done previously. And it was very humbling. And, oh. Did you go? But
0: I used to be the opinion editor at the Herald.
1: In my head, I did. <laughs> I definitely did in my head. I didn't dare speak it out loud, but I definitely did feel that sense of I. F- I felt humbled, almost to the point of I think sometimes humiliated, which is not a helpful thing in a learning environment. But yeah, it was it w- was humbling, probably in a very good way as well. So yeah, that that was a, a challenge. But also, I'm I'm not alone. There's lots of people these days who retrain as doctors after a previous career, and it also and it does mean that. I think we have, as junior doctors, been able to make changes to the system that might not have been possible if we were much younger. For example, when I was a, my first year as a registrar, we had a roster that I felt was really unsafe. I was able to gather up my teammates and we, yeah, were able to, to complain and change it by banding together. And I think being older and being a little bit fiercer and a little bit less afraid really helped with that. So it was a, just for the record, just to explain what I'm I'm meaning. So, so we had a situation where we had to... So, so we were working sort of full-time Monday to Friday. We'd have to work all day till 5 o'clock and then once a week or so, you'd then have to be on call until the next morning. So be, be on call to be called into the emergency department to see, you know, scheduled patients, people who've been brought in by ambulance. So you could be brought in in the middle of the night anytime between 5pm and like 8.30 the next day. And so you... You might not be called in or you might have to drive to the hospital at midnight or 2 a.m. or both those times or 8 p.m. And then you're expected to work a whole next day as well. So you could potentially be, it's like, I've forgotten the maths, but it was something like you could potentially, you're on call or working for 27 or 28 hours straight. It just wasn't safe. It wasn't good. But we managed to change
0: it. So Well, there's that whole issue about mental health and sleep, right? Yeah. Let alone just functioning. Yeah, yeah. Medicine is renowned for being pretty masculine, sexist. Did you find that or had it improved for the time you turned up in hospital? I've had a pretty good run, to be honest.
1: I haven't seen much of that myself. Actually, where I do still see it is, I think the the most vulnerable group I've seen in is uh, female medical students, and particularly around things like maternity leave, which is still absolutely shocking. Because when you're a medical student, you it's like you have the responsibilities of a job but none of the rights. So there are still medical students who are basically told you can take like five days off or a month off, but then unless you're willing to take a whole year off, you then have to come back to work full time, come back to study full time with very little um, consideration of the fact that you have a newborn baby.
0: I want to come back to how you juggled all of that, but... The other thing I'm interested to explore with you is how you do have influence. So you you talked about banding everyone together and, and changing the roster and you were older when you did it. What advice do you have for people who are lower in the pecking order for whatever reason, went into the career later possibly because they had children, who are feeling a little bit disconnected because of the age difference and the lack of influence they can have over what's going on above them? I think that idea of banding together with other people
1: that you work with is really important. If you're a junior person, it is hard to have power on your own. But if you are a group of junior people all acting together, all presenting the same concerns, you, you can actually have power. And if you're an older junior person, you can be the, the one who gathers people together and shows them how to negotiate effectively in those in that situation. So I think there is an opportunity as an
0: older person to lead other juniors. How did you manage having a young family and a medical career? It was tricky. <laughs> it was tricky. I want people to know that you paused and yeah. laughed nervously yeah, at, that, yeah. at that question. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it, it was tricky. I guess I had, I've had, i taken time off along the way. So I had a my second child during medical school and I had a full year off then. And then most of my training I've done part time. I've worked I've worked full time for the last year or two, but before that most of my training's been part time. Because I've I've learned the hard way that you need to be able to have quality of life to be able to sustain a career. And if you are just on the edge of burnout and collapse for years at a time, it's not good for anyone.
0: And were you at times on the edge of burnout?
1: I reckon it's been a good ten years since I've felt burnt out, but i have definitely burnt myself out earlier in my career and I think I've learned lessons from that and I think one of the lessons is you need to let go of that idea of being like a a shiny special girl who gets gold stars. I think that's a really risky thing for for young women to try to be, and you need to let go of it and you need to be able to Ask for things and be inconvenient to people and get what you need and not feel like you need to impress everyone all the time because it's not sustainable.
0: And when did you figure that out, do you think? Because that is a that's a big thing to figure out. It's an
1: ongoing process. But I, I think um after burning myself out as a journalist, that I think that's a point where I I started to realise it. But I would say also actually having kids helped me let go of some of that. Because once you are balancing work and kids, you can't do your best anymore. Yeah. I mean, like, say, for example, even something like medical school exams, I think they were less stressful because I knew I was only able to do as well as I could in the circumstances. That Whatever marks I got was not like an inherent statement about my underlying intelligence or worth or value because it just couldn't be. Like, you just had to get through in a... Um, challenging situation, and I think that helped me just let go of the idea that, you know, an exam mark was a definitive statement about me.
0: Would you have been like a, a chronic overachiever throughout your entire career, would you have thought, or a perfectionist? I believe in
1: excellence, and that's why I'm not a perfectionist, because I think being a perfectionist is does not give good results. But I, I've definitely, I think I genuinely have controlled my overachiever tendencies, even though it might not seem like that, and I'll give, I'll give you ex- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay'll I'll give you I'll give you an example. So recently, I've had to put my CV together for for consultant jobs as a psychiatrist, and I realize I don't have any fancy bells or whistles from the last few years. So I've got the jobs that I did, I don't have any prizes. I, I wasn't on any committees, I didn't do any special things. and I actually don't think that's a failing. I think that was strategic and I'm proud of it because one of the things I've tried to do is just do my best at my job, enjoy my life, look after my family and not try to do anything more than that. I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, to try and fully inhabit my life except where I am in this season, that there'll be other seasons where I can be on committees or get prizes, but that's not this season. I just needed to get through my training I just needed to do my best by my patients and by my kids and
0: and leave it there. I think it's just such good advice. And when you walked in, I said, I can't find any record of you calling yourself Dr. Lisa Pryor. And you said, yes, I've been a doctor for eight years. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting point in itself. Like, you're, it's not easy to find your qualifications even. We had to write to you and say, can you, and which I never do. I can always find someone's bio. So you have really... Stepped into the work was that how you would describe it? Yeah, yeah. That I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just living
1: my life, trying to do a useful job, and let go of needing to have a public profile or get accolades or have people think I'm special. I've just really
0: settled into middle age. I think it's so interesting. I lecture people a bit about this as well. Like at some point, it's enough just to do what you do or stop doing it. Yeah, stop yeah, doing whatever yeah. it was that you were identified yeah. as, um, and just you know, be content with
1: that. And I think part of that is that the work I do, I often see people who have gone through awful things who are experiencing a really difficult time in their life. And I think it's made me realise my own good fortune in just living my life. And it's made me appreciate, I guess, just boring life. Like, I don't have a glamorous social life. I like to, like, listen to my podcasts Hang out my washing, watch my terrible reality TV. Like that's not like that is that's actually not a bad life. Like it's actually I I don't think yeah, I, I don't think the glamour or Yeah, excitement is necessarily the pathway to happiness. I think sometimes it is picking up the washing and watching TV with your family.
0: The doctor bit? Oh, the doctor bit about <laughs> <laughs> why I can't find anything with doc And your emails, you don't put yourself... You don't put doctor... I mean, this is... I'm obviously playing into Julia Baird wrote about this in her last book. I know she's got a new one out soon. Uh, where she talked about owning the doctor because she did a PhD. And as soon as she did it, she got slammed because she wasn't a real doctor. Hmm. Um, which would never happen to a man. Yeah.
1: And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm in two minds. Because on one hand, I don't want to be someone who... Is always calling themselves doctor or, or always wanting to be recognised as a doctor, and especially because I guess one of the things I'm conscious of is that in my work I work in a multidisciplinary team with people, a range of people with a range of different expertise,s who aren't all doctors. So you know, with with social workers and psychologists and nurses, and we all have our important role. And I'm conscious of not always wanting to go, "Ooh, I'm the doctor. Call me doctor." But then again, there is that gender element, isn't there? Where where maybe I should be, for, for um, gender equity reasons, more forward in using that title and acknowledge it. And also one of the beautiful things as well of it, with it from a gender perspective is that it's a title that you can use that isn't about your marital status, doesn't even designate whether you're male or female, So, which is unlike Ms., Mrs., yeah. any of the other ones. It's just doctor. Does anyone ever ask you whether you're married? Maybe, but um, I'm very. Well, one of the things you learn in my profession is to become very good at deflecting questions politely about yourself. Is that because of being a psychiatrist, or is that because being in the medical profession generally? Possibly both, but particularly psychiatry. I think it's really important not to make it about yourself. That when people are speaking to mental health professionals, it's one of the few times where they don't have to ask questions back about you, and they shouldn't have to. It's it's their time, and yeah, that's why. good a reason as any to deflect those questions, I think.
0: Are you done now? You've just convinced me that pegging out the washing, watching Netflix is is enough and doing what I imagine is incredibly satisfying work. But do you have another degree in you somewhere?
1: No, never. I am (laughs) never, ever going to do another degree.
0: I like working.
1: I've done enough study. I'm over it. It's done.
0: Lisa, do you have any final advice for young women who are embarking on their careers right now, given everything you've seen and done? I would save your young. There's time. There's more time than you
1: expect. You've got times to stuff up. You've got enough time to try different things. Just live your life. You don't need to be perfect. Just take your time. Dr. Lisa Pryor, thank you for joining me. Thanks
0: for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin, series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.